Well, I'm going to invite Keith right now, and he's going to come, and he is going to read Scripture for us. I want to invite you to stand and let us get our Bibles and turn to uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 1 through 25, 1 through 25, um, like we did last week. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears the fruit, much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it may be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should, but should, be up, should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates me, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they, would, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. 
but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, whoever hates me, hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We are working through the Gospel of John, as you know, and um, we have come to chapter 15, and in chapter 15, there's kind of a, I'll call it a mini-series, and it's, a, it's a, a series I'm calling Abiding, and last week we looked at abiding in his life, uh, today we're going to be looking at abiding in his love, and uh, next week we'll look at abiding in his legacy, and uh, we read the whole text of all three of those um, all th- three of those realities, and today as we really pick up at verse 12, um, one is building on the other, and we're going to be focusing on this subject of friendship, and the kind of friendship that Jesus has for his disciples. Now, in the Old Testament, there are only two people who are identified as friends of God. They are Moses and Abraham. In In Exodus chapter 33, in verse 11, this is what we're told. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. So he's saying that, you know, when when God spoke to Moses, it was like he was speaking to a friend. When we move to Abraham, though, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 7 says this, Did you not, uh, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham your friend. So Abraham specifically is called then a friend of God. Again, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Now again, when we think of friendship in the Bible, I think one of the places that our minds would drift is this wonderful, beautiful relationship uh, of a man by the name of David and his good friend, Jonathan. And the unique thing about that relationship is that Jonathan was the son of the king. But David was the national hero. And Jonathan was the, I want to say, next one in line to be the king. And yet the people of the land wanted David, who was the hero, to be the king. And so there was a lot potentially to cause conflict in that relationship. But they, because they were such good friends... They rose above it, and there's something beautiful about that picture of friendship that we have in that passage. But now as we come to chapter 15 of John's gospel, we find Jesus and his disciples uh, in this friendship relationship. Look at verse 15 of chapter 15. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now just just remember that as we, as we come through this, this gospel, we are coming and entering into this gospel, and we see ourselves in a number of the characters in this gospel, but in particular, we see ourselves in the disciples, because we are ultimately followers of Christ, if we've come to know him as personal Lord and Savior, and we are given instructions that 
carry out the same things that he was asking the disciples to do. And so we, we certainly enter into the story here by seeing ourselves then as being ones that Jesus would call friends. But what does Jesus mean by this expression? Let me just say what he doesn't mean. He's not saying, hey, listen, I'm your biggest best bud. Okay? I'm your homeboy. All right? We, we have in our Christian culture downplayed this, this word friend that Jesus calls us and our relationship with him in such a way that it really has become mundane when this relationship really is a beautiful, staggering relationship that we have with Jesus, and we want him to explain it for us. So what did Jesus mean when he was using this expression? Well, when we look back in our lives and we think about friends that we have had, we probably think of many friends. Many friends that you had back in school, maybe many friends that you had back in college, but usually you kind of whittle it down to a few special friends that lived life together with you, had shared experiences, good, some not so good, some pretty mischievous, right? I mean, some of those stories we have are stories that you share in quiet company, but, you know, we remember those friends, that we grew up with them, and we, we lived and we laughed together. And as I reflected over, I just thought about some of my life in elementary school, Prior Ridge uh, in England. Spencer was my good friend. In fact, he was one of my good friends, and my son's middle name is Spencer. Um, and it's because Spencer was a good buddy of mine, and we would do all sorts of things together. Spencer loved to laugh, especially when people got hurt. He would laugh the most. Um, in middle school, added to that collection, there was... Robert, and there was Julian, and there was Gavin, and uh, again, another group of guys that were just really, really tight and good friends, and then in high school, in England still, add to that Simon and Robin, and there was this group of guys that we would do a lot of stuff with, and then I came to the United States, and probably one of my good friends was Scott, there was Kent. When I got to college, I would say my best friend was Jim Newcomer, he was also my best man, and I was his best man, and we had that kind of relationship going on there, and he is also a pastor, um, and uh, we've continued that relationship together. But since then, I've added to that Randy, who's now pastoring the church I used to pastor in Michigan. There's Tig, who's also a pastor, but grew up in high school together and went to college with together. There's Steve, who was a missionary in Costa Rica, who's now with the Lord. Um, and then there's also Matthias and uh, Edgar Trabulsi, who's in, in Lebanon. And these are just these people that God has brought into my life. And as I reflect on those relationships, I am reminded of the intimacy and the depth of some of those friendships. And certainly, as God has, has allowed, we have established in this fellowship, in this church, relationships that I would call friends. So in most cases, if I, if I went back in time a little bit, or if I, if I got on Facebook and I've connected with some of these old friends that I have, if I were just to sit down with them over, over dinner, it would be like we, 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 you know, we were just there yesterday, except now we're, you know, we're grayer and older and wrinklier and all that kind of stuff. But there is a connection there because we were friends. We weren't just acquaintances. We actually did things together. We, we spent time. We interacted. We enjoyed things together. And so we have an, a little understanding of what friendship is based on our experience. But Jesus has told the disciples that he is that they are his friends. In most cases, um, like I said, we, we, we would be able to go back and, and interact with those friends, but Jesus now inst institutes really a, a new understanding, a new perspective 
of what this friendship is. Now, he has told his disciples here that they are to abide in his life. We've already seen that. Abide in me is what he said. I am the vine. You are the branches. And he talked about the different kind of branches. And the kind of branch that bears fruit is the true branch. And so he established that. But the vine and the branches analogy doesn't have room to explain the depth of intimacy um, that abiding in him or in his life looks like. So Jesus then, after the vine and the branches, brings in this picture, brings in this word to describe now the kind of relationship that these fruit-bearing branches now have with him. They're not just fruit-bearing branches, they're also branches that are called his friends. See, there's, there's a level of intimacy. In fact, um, if you think about it, the, the, Jesus uses the word agape here to describe his love. He talks about abide in my love. And um, that word love there is the word agape. But the word friend here is the word philoi, which is the same root word which we get the word phileo. It's another word for love. So I want you to think about it this way, okay, that um, to abide in his life, if you are truly abiding in his life, then you are also abiding in his love. And if you are abiding in his love, then you ultimately are abiding as a friend. Okay? So the word friend here literally means someone who is loved. So when Jesus looks at you and says, you're one of my children, you are a branch that is abiding in me, he's saying, you are my friend, you are one whom I love. That's the idea. That's the picture here. So he calls us friends. So what are the characteristics of a friend of Jesus? What does it look like to be one of his friends? And this morning, I would like for us to see in our passage four characteristics of a true friend of Jesus. Here are just the the main words that that fill in the the headings there to help you out. And we're going to flesh these out a little bit more. This is very, very clear in the text. It opens it up very, very simply, but a true friend of Christ is one who loves, who obeys, and knows, and is chosen. But hear this, these are not prerequisites to true friendship. These are characteristics of a true friendship. In other words, I don't want you to think, okay, I've got to love God more. I've got to obey Him more. I've got to know Him more. I've got to be sure that I'm chosen as if those are prerequisites to become a friend, these are evidences of the fact that you are a friend. Okay, see the difference? You need to make sure that we are approaching this because he's describing now to his disciples, this is who you are, and here's how you know who you are. You are my friend. So first of all, his friends um, love one another, is what he says here. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So in order to understand this command to love one another, we need to look first at the example of Jesus and then the evidence of the friends. So the example of Jesus here then begins with the fact that Jesus says, hey, listen, I am loved by the Father. He said that in verse 10. And so I love you. You, if you remember there, it's his, the love for the Father that, that fuels, in a sense, the love that Jesus has for you. He begins that in verse 10. 
And he says, abide in my love. Then in verse 12 now, he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So the love that Jesus has for us, then, is the basis of our love for one another. His example, then, is really important to us. So look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, there are lots of people in this world and throughout history that have died for their friends. They have said, maybe in, in the context of a battle, I'm going to get in the way of that bullet, or I'm going to get in the way of that sword, and I'm going to sacrifice my life to protect my friends, to, to, to protect my wife or my children. I'm willing to die for another person. Okay, That is not uncommon. It is a wonderful it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing when someone actually demonstrates that kind of love and gives their life for the benefit of others. Now, although it is a beautiful thing, it falls short of what Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus is not talking about some temporary earthly relationship. He's talking about an eternal relationship. And I want us to think through a little bit here about the example of Jesus. First of all, I want us to recognize that Jesus did not have to die. And you say, oh, wait a second. He did have to die. That's the gospel. I realize that. But God, the Godhead before the, crea the creation of the world determined that Jesus would come. And he would come and he would die on the cross. In other words, there was a choice in the mind of the Godhead before the world was created that this was going to be the plan, okay? So God, in, in, in his creation of this world, had in his mind what was necessary to provide for mankind, and it was the death of his son, Jesus Christ. That's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? I mean, it's just hard for us to wrap our hands around, except for the fact that it's what Scripture teaches, and so we embrace it to be true. And that's why Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And all throughout the gospel here, he's saying, it's me, it's me, it's me. But ultimately, I am going to a cross. But he didn't have to do that. There was a choice way back when. Okay? That's the first thing we need to understand. It was definitely a deliberate plan. All right, and Jesus didn't need to die, but he chose to do it. Secondly, Jesus knew that he would die. So Jesus enters this world, but he understands that in entering this world that he would die. Now, it doesn't flesh it out as much in John's gospel. In Mark's gospel, it certainly does. And you can look at it, but he talks about having his face set toward Jerusalem. He repeated to his disciples the actual specific events that were going to take place. He knew he was going to Jerusalem to go to a cross. So he knew that he was going to die. That's what he'd been talking about. It's what he was anticipating. It was what he was focusing on. But he was still pondering in his humanity, and he struggled with the ultimate sacrifice that he was going to have to give. That was what happened in the garden, right? He was, he was dripping sweat that was filled with blood. He was concerned in his humanity about what was going to take place, but he was resolute that he was going to do what the Godhead had determined that he was going to do. So he didn't have to die. Secondly, he knew that he would die. And here's the third thing. Jesus knew that he would die for sinners, not friends. 
Now, you just got to think about that, all right? Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, that's a, that's a packed statement. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we have to understand that the Apostle Paul in, in that Roman letter is laying down a flow of ideas that begins in chapter 1 that establishes the nature of man and, and man's bent toward God. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 and follow. He paints a picture here of the human race that is in rebelling against God. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And as a result of that, the rest of the passage talks about that God gives them up or gives them over, depending on the translation you have, to sexual lust, to dishonorable passions, to a debased mind. In other words, what he's doing here at the beginning of uh, the book of Romans to, is, is to establish the condition of man. Man is in rebellion against God. Man is a sinner. So as we move through um, Paul's letter to the Romans, when we get to chapter 5, he's already established man's condition, but now he's, he's talking about the resolve that the God had had for man's condition. So we pick up in chapter 5 and verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. That's what I was talking about earlier. There are some examples of people giving up their lives for other people. But God, verse 8, shows his love for us in that while we were still, what? Sinners, not friends. Sinners, Christ died for us. So he didn't have to die, but he knew he would die, but he also knew that he would be dying for sinners, not friends. Now that's all an example of how Jesus loves us and speaks to us about how we are to love one another. And so the, the example of Jesus then leads us then to the evidence for our friendship, the kind of friendship that he wants us to have when he says, I want you to love one another just like I have loved you. Well, how has he loved you? He loved us with a sacrificial love. And the way we love one another is that we love one another with a sacrificial love. It's kind of a general statement, but it fleshes out in a number of different ways. It can, it can flesh out this way. We sacrifice sometimes our comforts. I remember my first trip to Russia. Um, I was going there to teach a number of pastors. I had someone with me that was kind of there uh, team teaching with me. And the pastor welcomed us into his home. It was one of those typical apartments in Russia. And uh, he ushered us into the room that we were staying in. And um, we were like, okay, this is modest. It's very, very simple, basic bed, you know, kind of just kind of a a place to put your stuff, although the, the drawers had other things in it. There really weren't any closets to hang your clothes. We just put our suitcases out. But it was comfortable. We were happy, you know. And part of it was, you know, okay, this is, you know, not, not a bad guest room and that kind of stuff. Except in the morning when I got up, I got, a little, got up a little earlier, and I wanted to go to the kitchen to get something to drink. I walked into the kitchen, and I'm not kidding you, Grandma 
okay, is laying, sleeping on top of the kitchen table, okay? Now, when we have people come spend the night at our house, I tell my kids, you know, right now, Gavin is home, he's sleeping on the couch, okay? Which is good, that means I can't go sleep on the couch, all right? That's a whole other story, but anyway, all right? He's sleeping on the couch. I'm not saying, Gavin, go sleep on the kitchen table. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, when was the last time you said, you know what? How about you sleep on the kitchen table? Or how about, hey, Grandma, how about you sleep on the kitchen table? you got to get Grandma up on the kitchen table and get her off the kitchen table, okay? And I'm not talking about young Grandma here. And then I walk into another room, just kind of a, a little bit, and, and, and because my, my, my hosts are there and they're getting up, and I find out they were sleeping on the floor. I was, with my friends, sleeping in their room. They were sacrificing their comforts for a guest. Now, see, that's loving one another, right? And, and, and this word sacrifice flushes out in a number of different ways. We sacrifice our time. We sacrifice our resources. We sacrifice our energy. We sacrifice our rights. Why? Because we are called to love one another. That's what Jesus did. So those who are friends of Jesus love one another like he loved his disciples. The second thing here is this. Those who are Jesus' friends obey his commandments. You say, this is sounding so basic. It is basic, but friends, this is profound. This is so important for us to see. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Okay? Now listen, obedience is not the means to get to God, but the characteristic fruit of a friend of God. Or to say it another way, obedience is not an entry into love. Christ brings us or draws us to himself into his family through this new birth that we call regeneration, and that only happens because of the cross. And so this obedience that we're talking about here is a natural fruit of what Jesus has done in bringing us into his family. So obedience is a mark or a characteristic of a friend of Jesus, but it's an obedience that is described in a couple different ways. And, and even just this one little short verse fleshes this out for us. First of all, it is active. It is something that we do. Okay? He says, you are my friends if you, what? Do what I command you. All right? This kind of obedience does things. So the evidence of your friendship here is not your willingness to avoid things necessarily, although there is a part where we need to avoid things, but there are many people who are, you know, in you know, trying to pursue their walk with God by simply saying, you know, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. And friends, there's a lot of things you guys are not doing right now. You, you, you can list them off because you're just not doing them. Does the fact that you're not doing them somehow make you more impressive to God? The, the emphasis here is what you do, not what you're not doing, Right? In other words, it's not passive, but it's active. It's thinking. It's deliberate. 
It's making a choice to be obedient. But it's not like a choice. It's like, oh, 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 I guess I have to be obedient. That's what God wants me to do. Oh, man. No, it's I want to. I'm eager to. I'm choosing to. It's active, okay? It's an obedience that has been taught by God through his word. So as you're studying his word or as you're reading his word or it's being preached or it's in a, in a home group and you're, you're hit, you know, you're hit in your heart with this passage of scripture or this teaching, you're saying, oh, wow, I don't know that I didn't know I needed to do that. And yet you're saying, but God, because I'm your friend, because you love me, I want to do that. I want to be obedient. It's active. Okay. So it's an obedience that desires to do what God's word calls us to do. Not only is it active, though, but it is also continuous. Now, this, this, this expression here, he says, you are my friends if you do, is in a particular tense that means that you are doing continually. It's not a I did it 10 years ago kind of a thing in the past, but we need to be looking at what we're doing in the present to show and to give evidence of the fact that we are his friends. Now, friends, there's a sad phenomenon that has taken place within Christian culture, and it's based on decisions that we have made in the past. You ask someone, so, you know, how's your walk with God? Or, you know, you know, how, how, you know what's your, your relationship with God? And, and maybe they'll say, well, you know, 15 years ago I was at Mount Hermon and I made a decision for Christ and I threw my twig in the fire and that's it. And you're saying, okay, that was 15 years ago. Are you still basing your, are you still basing your Christian life on what you did 15 years ago? Or are you basing it on what you're doing now? Now, friends, let me just be honest with you. Sometimes this is really, really difficult when, when it comes to someone passing away and you're wondering whether or not they're a believer or not and the family is reaching for anything they can find. Well, I think they opened a Bible sometime back then and they're looking for ways to, 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 to kind of give themselves some satisfaction or assurance that maybe they are truly believers. And so they'll go back to some events like that. But that's not how we measure whether or not we are part of God's family. That's not how we measure whether we're friends or not. You don't say, well, 15 years ago, I met someone and they're my friend. and You haven't interacted with them. What are you doing today? What would it be like today? And so we look at our lives and we say, aha, this is ongoing, daily, active obedience. It's fruit that has taken place day after day. So that may have happened 15 years ago. But the question is, how have you grown since then? And are you still growing? And see, a friend of Jesus is one who is obedient because they are choosing to be. They're active. It is a continual obedience, but it is also a complete obedience. It's obedience in all things. Jesus didn't say, you are my friends if you do a little bit of what I commanded you, right? He says, you are my friends if you continually do what I've commanded you, all the things that I've commanded you. Now, as parents, we understand that, you know. There are ten things kids I want you to do, and so they go do them. And they come back and say, I, I'm done. And you say, well, well, did you get it all done? Well, no, I did five, so I was obedient. Well, you didn't quite finish it out, okay. Now, this is an illustration. This really doesn't happen at my home at all, okay. But you know what I'm talking about, right? He is saying, listen, my friends desire to obey me completely. Now, I think it's important here to clarify that Jesus here is not talking about perfection. He knows that we're going to fall flat on our face, right? There are going to be times when it's clearly laid out for us, this is what you want to do. He knows that, that because we struggle with sin and, 
and we struggle with, with old life habits that are still there permeating who we are, that we are at, at times we're going to fall flat on our face and we're going to fail and we're going to get up and we're going to fail again. But he's, he's focused more here, not so much on this failure as it is an attitude or an orientation that we have to say, I, you know, I am called a friend, so I'm going to pursue down this path to honor and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. So our obedience is going to be sketchy because we fail, because we still sin. He understands that. But the, the point is, when you sin, what do you do with that? And what is your orientation? And do you get up and do you want to keep plugging down that path? That is what a friend of Jesus does. So he calls us friends. If we love one another, he calls us friends if we are um, obedient to his commands. He calls us also friends um, who know his truth. Look at verse 15. You no longer, oh, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Uh, uh, friends, just we can read through that and say, oh yeah, okay, that's good. But what, what is being said here is absolutely incredible. And let's just pause and let's just think about this. This word for servants is not a good translation. Okay? In fact, there's a book back on our table written by John MacArthur where he just emphasizes the fact that this word doulos in the Greek is a word that literally means slaves. It's just not politically correct for a while to actually translate it slaves. But that's, that's the idea. That's the picture of what's going on here, all right? No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing. What is the unique responsibility of a slave? What's the answer? You do what you're told. You don't ask questions. You just do what you're told. Go out into the field and, you know, do whatever I'm asking you to do in the field. Pick the crops, dig the ditch, you know, wash the house. Whatever it might be, you are a slave. You are owned, you do what the master says, okay? That's the picture. It's total and complete obedience to the will of the master. Now, he says here, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing. Just goes around, it's obedient. But, big circle there, I have called you what? Friends, the objects of my love the ones whom I love. For all that I have heard from my Father now, I have made known to you. <laughs> so what's different about being a peer or a friend of the master as it is to being a slave? A slave just does the will of the master. A friend is drawn in by that master with knowledge or intimate revelation. He explains what he's doing and why. He explains it. Uh, and how it will take place. He considers the thoughts and the feelings of his friends. He helps them to understand how to face the problems before them. So listen, guys, the fact that God has breathed out his word is evident to the fact that he wants to do what? He wants us to know. He wants us to know what he's thinking. He wants us to know what his will is. He wants us to know how to best live our lives for his glory. He's drawing us in. He's allowing us not to be off in a distance, just simply functioning in life by saying, well, I did this and I did this and I did this and what does my master want me to do now? It's far more deeper than that, far more precious than that. It is a God who wants to draw us into an intimate personal relationship. 
So it's like a friend saying to you, hey, I want to show you something, but it's a secret. I only want you to know. I'm going to take you into a world and show you something that maybe you're not aware of. Or it's a friend who's saying, listen, I want to tell you something, but I'm only telling a few people. We've had some of that going on in here, right? I'm pregnant, right? How soon does that information get out? Well, it gets out pretty fast with that close, intimate network of friends, right? And then it slowly comes out over a process of time. Or maybe you've lost your job. You know, you just stand up and proclaim it to everyone. Do you tell some people that you trust and you love that are friends of yours? Or I'm struggling in my marriage. Or I'm in really bad trouble. Whatever those things might be, there's a certain network of friends that you have that are part of that intimate relationship. And what Jesus is telling us here is that he is bringing us into this relationship where we are blessed with intimacy, with knowledge, with an awareness that is precious, that is private, that is, that is valuable. Listen to what William Barclay says about this relationship. There's some cultural things that may be helpful for us here. He says this, the phrase friends is lit up by a custom practice at the courts both of the Roman emperors and of the kings of the Middle East. At these courts, there was a very select group called the friends of the king or the friends of the emperor. At all times, they had access to the king. They even had the right to come to his bedchamber at the beginning of the day. He talked to them before he talked to his generals, his rulers, and his statesmen. The friends of the king were those who had the closest and most intimate connection with him. Okay, guys, see, this is not Jesus as my buddy. This is Jesus as my intimate friend. Actually, I am his intimate friend. He's calling us friends. And so Jesus then reveals himself to us in a very similar way. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And verse 12 fleshes this concept out for us. The Apostle Paul now speaking to that Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. There's that knowledge that he gives us, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's why when God breathed out his word, it's not some piece of literature. It is a living, breathing word. And it's the living, breathing word that is revealed to us and given to us. The natural person, in other words, the person who is not spiritual, who doesn't know God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They can't see beyond the ink on the page. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, which I will say the friend judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. See, we have been given this beautiful revelation. That's because we're his friends. So, a friend of Jesus loves others, in particular, other believers. A friend of Jesus obeys his commands continually, actively, completely. A friend of Jesus also is blessed with intimate, personal 
revelation from God directly to us through his word. And you just think about the context of what's going on and how Jesus has just been speaking about the Holy Spirit in chapter 14 and how he will bring all these things to your remembrance and all that interplay and the interaction here. This is what a branch looks like that is bearing fruit, that is in Jesus. It is also in his love. He is a friend. He has this intimate relationship. But also, number four here, his friends. I'm oh, sorry, I didn't put that up there for you. His friends also are chosen to bear fruit. Now let's think through now verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain or abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. His friends are chosen to bear fruit. Now let's just walk through this verse then and understand um, what it is that Jesus is saying here to us about his friends. First of all, he chose us for salvation. The choosing he's talking about here is this, might want to say, election. It is, is effectual calling. It is him drawing someone to himself. So Jesus is autonomous in the area of whom he will choose to be his friend. That's what he's saying here. We tend to choose people to be our friends because we like them, because they like us, or we have some mutual interests. And oftentimes when we see this word choice being used in this context, we're thinking about back in the days when we were on the playground and there was going to be some game going on. You guys remember those scenarios? As a guy, I remember those scenarios. Like, all right, we're going to play soccer. And we're all kind of, in England, we had this, playground and had a fence around you kind of line up against the fence and you're like you know okay choose going to be the captains you know you never you're never the captains someone else up there you know and they say oh, I'll take so and so and I'll take so and so you know and you're wondering if you're going to be the person left behind and the reason they're picking you to be on their team is because you're gifted or you're skilled or they like you or all that kind of stuff right and so we have this this mindset that measures choice based on fairness and a fairness that we understand but God chooses perfectly. He is not tainted by any measure of injustice. His choice is completely fair. Now what's striking about this passage is that we have become his friends, not because we choose him, but because he has in his wonderful mercy, chosen us. Now, we didn't choose him. We wouldn't choose him. We couldn't choose him. It's only because of him pursuing us and breathing life into us that we even responded to him. Now, friends, I realize there comes a point in time in the whole gospel call that we respond to him by saying, yes, I am, I am receiving this wonderful gift of salvation. I recognize there is this point in time. And th the problem is that we, we want the, 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 the pride to say, we made this decision, right? Somehow, we're smart. We're smarter than that other person who's not making this decision. Somehow, we have this special gift somehow that we can think, well, that gift ultimately is the gift that God gives us to, to give us a revelation, to take off the blinders so that we can see our sinfulness and to see that Jesus Christ is the solution for our sinfulness. He opens up our eyes, he gives us life, and now we are his friend. 
And it's important for us to recognize that. Specifically, what does Jesus say here to his disciples? You did not choose me, but I chose you. And friends, if we are the friends of Jesus, that means that we have been chosen by him. It's not for us to question that. It's us to rejoice over that. That's why Newton wrote the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. He was the guy on the fence saying, you know what, I'm not going to be picked for this team. But God, in his wisdom, chose him. That's amazing grace. Because there was nothing in him that was worthy of God picking him, except that God, in his love and his compassion and his will, reached out and drew him to himself. And so, friends, we don't have to somehow, and even as you're witnessing, people do not have to somehow impress God and say, see, I'm doing all this. God has already been at work in people's lives when he's drawing them to himself, and it's a choice that he makes. And, and we can't wrestle with that. We just receive that. It's how he works. Now, one word of caution here. Um, <clears throat> we are God's friends by grace. In other words, we're his friends because he has stooped to us and invited us into this relationship. So that means that we do not approach God as his equal friends, all right? So if he calls us friends, that doesn't mean then that we are equals. It means that we have this wonderful relationship going on, but he is still our authority. He is still our master, right? And that's why we've got to be careful that we don't just kind of diminish this relationship by just saying, you know, he's my buddy, he's my homeboy, he's my hunting partner, he's my whatever it might be. He is God. And he stays God. Uh, that's why I even cringe about, you know, I know their illustrations, but, you know, you know, God is my co-pilot. God is not your co-pilot. He's the one that is organizing everything that is going on. It's far more than that. And I realize they're pictures to help us understand, but he is so vast and so wonderful and so great. We just got to be careful that we are functioning with respect and understanding that he has brought us into this friendship relationship. And so secondly, we don't dictate the terms of our friendship. He does. So we are not his equal, and we don't dictate the terms of that friendship. We must always approach God with, a, with gratitude and always mindful that our friendship has taken place because he has stooped to our level. Not the other way around. He chose us for salvation. Secondly here, he appointed us specifically for service. He tells us there, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and out of that appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. He's specifically appointing us for a purpose. The word there literally means setting you apart. It is the word and the concept that we get um, the setting apart for ministry. You talk about, you know, here's a minister who's going to be ordained. That's the same expression that is used. Here's a couple of passages of Scripture to think about. Acts 20, 28. I read that at the beginning uh, of our meeting earlier this morning at 9 o'clock where it's talking about the appointing of elders. He has made you is what it says, but it's that same word. He has appointed you to be elders or overseers. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Talking, they're appointing giftedness in the church. God appoints different people to have particular gifts. 
He's chosen them to use them in a particular way. He has a purpose for you. He also appointed Paul um, in his service and to be a preacher and an apostle, 1 Timothy 1.12 and 1 Timothy 2.7. So there is this appointment that is, that is taking place here for those disciples. So as he's speaking to his disciples, again, this, this, this upper room right before he's going to be taken and, and, and arrested and they're going to be, be challenged for ministry. He's saying, listen, I have chosen you. You're my friend, but I've also appointed you. I am, I am preparing you for specific ministry endeavor. Now the question is, for what has he appointed you? He's brought you in. He calls you friend. He's chosen you, but he's also appointed you. For what purpose? What are you to be? Well, for some of you, you're to be men. For some of you, you're to be the man in the home, the husband, the father, specific role. He's appointed you to be wives. He's appointed you to be children and to respect your parents and to honor them and to do all you can until it's time for you to transition out of the home. Those are part of the appointments. But there are also gifted appointments that he gives you. He's given you all sorts of spiritual gifts. He's given you natural talents. But ultimately, he has appointed you, he tells us here, so that you will what? Bear fruit. The goal and the purpose for that appointing is that fruit then will take place. Look at verse 16 again. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Purpose now, purpose clause, that you should go and bear fruit. So the purpose then of this appointing is that there would be fruit. There's actually two things that will take place, and let's look at those. Um, the first one is this, that you will produce lasting fruit. Notice it says that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should uh, abide or remain. Now, there's been a progression in this passage in John chapter 15 in the arena of fruit. Just follow along if you have your Bibles open there in chapter 15. Look at verse 2. It talks there about bearing fruit. It just says, bear fruit. And then a little later in verse 2 it says, bear more fruit, right? So you go from fruit to bearing more fruit. And then in verse 8, it talks there about bearing much fruit. So it's building now, okay? And now we get to verse 16, that you're going to bear fruit that will remain, that will abide, that will last. Now there's all sorts of fruit that we can bear. Right? But listen, apples will get rotten, will they not? So will pears. Oranges, and strawberries, and berries will spoil. Okay, those are all human, earthly, tangible things, but the kind of fruit that's being talked about here is spiritual fruit. And if we, if we focus on bearing fruit in this world, we may have a kind of fruit for a season, but it will not last. Spiritual fruit will last. Christian character that he is working in you will last. Converts coming to Christ will last. The fruit that Jesus is talking about here ultimately is this growth in Christ-likeness. And second to that is this growth in those coming to know him as Lord and Savior. To also become friends. And so that just takes us back then to the purpose then 
that he is sending out these disciples for, which we find in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. You know the passage, I'm sure, very well. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, or literally, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and, and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all um, or to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is, as you're going, these are the things that you are to be doing, ultimately proclaiming the gospel and seeing converts um, come to know Christ as their Savior. And when that happens, you disciple them, you teach them, you shape them, you baptize them. This is all part of growth. This is all the kind of fruit. And friends, that fruit will remain. Because Jesus never loses anyone that, that the Father gives him. So he desires then that we would produce lasting fruit. He also promises here that our prayers would be answered. Again, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Let me ask you a question. Do true friends speak honestly with each other? Do you think Jesus, in talking about his disciples as friends, is speaking honestly? So everything they ask Jesus, he is going to do? That was a trick question. This is not carte blanche now for every prayer request that Jesus is going to answer, has to answer because I am his friend. What does it say? So that whatever you ask the Father, what? In my name. That is according to my will. That meets the measurement of my purposes. So in other words, I might pray, God, help me get out of this financial crisis. That's what I desire. I am your friend. You've called me friend. And so I come to you and I say, God, help me out of this financial crisis. And God may have plans for you to stay in that financial crisis. Because he has other purposes for you. It's not a demand. But the promise is that our friendship is still intact. But I pray according to his will. And we say as we pray those prayer requests, Lord, our finances or our health or our job situation, we have all sorts of things going on here. We say, Lord, this is what I'm doing. Here's what I'm asking for. But may it be according to your will. And he promises that if we are praying in his name, if we're praying according to his will, he will answer that prayer request. Why? Because we are his friends. The point here is he's trying to describe this intimate, personal relationship that we have with him because we are abiding in him and secondly, abiding in his love. And that's this intimate, wonderful, perfect relationship that can only come as a result of the cross. And so the reason... Um, that we, uh, that we can pray is because we can be confident, we can be crying out, is because we are his friends. And he wants us to come to him. He wants us to talk to him. He wants us to hear from him. That's what friends do. They talk to each other and look out for each other. Now verse 17, as we kind of bring this to a close, uh, this is a transitional statement, a transitional verse, but it summarizes things too. He says, these things I command you, so that you will love one another. Now, 
few things I want to finish with here. Number one, we are his friends. See, I know we just talked about that. But listen, never take it for granted. And be very, very careful that you do not diminish what that actually means. It's no small thing to be called a friend of Jesus. By the way, a little caveat here. It's always we are his friends. It's not that Jesus is our friend. We are his friends. He is the one that is drawing us into this relation. He is the one that is calling us friend. Okay? So just, I mean, just let it settle in and the wonder and the beauty of that intimacy. If you are one of his children, you are one of his friends. Secondly, we are his friends together. And that's all kind of part and parcel in this passage, isn't it? If you're one of my friends, you will love one another. And think about that this, this loving of one another really is the mortar between the bricks of all the one another's in Scripture. The reason why we do all those things, the reason why we are obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ in carrying out the one another's is because it's our desire to love one another. We're all his friends, and so we are loving one another as his friends. We are all friends together, friends of Jesus. That's why we care for one another. We pray for one another. We comfort one another. We encourage one another. We teach, support, and serve one another. We live in harmony with one another. We are hospitable to one another, even if it means coming and sleeping on my kitchen table. I'll let you do that. That's fine, okay? We build up one another. We submit to one another. We fellowship with one another. And that's just a short list of all the one another's in Scripture. But it's all fashioned and shaped by the fact that we are to love one another. So we are his friends together. So how am I supposed to love one another? How is that fleshing out? I realize that I am a friend of his. And I realize that that other brother or sister is also a friend of his. And so we say, you know what? If you're friends with him, then we are friends too. And how do friends treat each other? Okay? The final thing is this. We are his friends together for eternity. <laughs> now, if you're a child of God today, if you are one of his friends, guess what? One day in the not-too-distant future, we are all going to be together in a place called eternity, heaven. And depending on God's timetable and what his ultimate plan is that is unfolding, we will be celebrating together. We will see each other. We will be gathered together, worshiping him, not at gate, as Gateway Bible Church, but as the church surrounding the throne, worshiping the Savior. See, we are friends together for eternity. But here's, here's what I want you to, to, to take away specifically as we, as we close this out. We are his friends, and ultimately friends, that means that we are the fruit that will last. So, what God wants you to do ultimately is to focus on bearing fruit that will last. And I just want to encourage you, the fruit that will last begins with your family. That means sharing the gospel with those who are part of your immediate family. That means that's why you spend time together around the, wor the word. That's why you talk about the things of God in the context of family. Because one day when you're in heaven, you want your family member to be a friend of Jesus with you in eternity. 
You can buy them a nice car. You can help them buy a house. You can put groceries in their place. You can get them a good education. But that will not mean anything in eternity. What will mean everything is that that family member is a friend of Jesus. You can invest in your family and you can invest in your friends so that they will become friends of Jesus. They say you can't take everything to heaven with you. Yeah, you can. You can take other people who have also become friends of Jesus. Lord, help us today as we contemplate the beauty of this relationship that we have with you. Lord, may we bask in the awesome reality that you call us your friend. That is no small statement. And Lord, as we reflect over our walk with you, Lord, as we as we see a desire to love others, as we see a desire to be obedient, as we see the, the, the beauty and, and the freedom that we have because we know your heart and your desire because we, we've been born again, Lord, as we see the awesomeness and the, the, the grace, Lord, that has chosen us and appointed us to bear fruit, Lord, as we reflect on all that, Lord, it just it gives us a perspective that to be called your friend, Lord, is no small thing. And Lord, help us not to waste it. Help us, Lord, to enjoy it, to seek to understand it, to find strength in it. And Lord, to treat you and to interact with you as one who cares about us as a friend. So Lord, may we come to you talking about our struggles, confessing our sin, seeking counsel, seeking your wisdom. And Lord, Adding to that, Lord, as we have other friends who are also your friends, Lord, may we be friends together, glorifying and worshiping you because we have some things in common. Your gospel, Lord, has penetrated our lives. New life has, has, has taken place in us, and we see things afresh, and we, we want to make sure that we are being equipped, and we're glorifying you, and we're serving you, and we're doing all we can, Lord, to, to honor you with our lives. So, Lord, help us to be friends together. And Lord, help us also to be friends together for eternity. Lord, to, to be diligent about sharing the gospel so that what we have, Lord, others can receive. Others, Lord, can also come and be a part of this family and this friendship relationship. That you are desiring to work through us to build your family. And Lord, to build the, the, the many people, Lord, who will be your friends. Lord, we thank you for this privilege for this responsibility and for this relationship that only comes because of your gospel. You are an awesome God. We don't deserve you. But Lord, we are so humbled to be called your friends. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. In your name.